0: Today on the show, we're going to tell you a lot, hopefully, about a group of people that you may have never heard of or may have heard of by a different name than they prefer. So the name that you probably know is Gypsies. Um, that is not a name that is preferred by most of the people known as the Roma, the Romani people. We're going to tell you their story, where they come from, where they live, what kinds of specific difficulties as an ethnic minority uh, they face. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to tell you one particularly heartrending story uh, as a way to get into this conversation. It's a story that has been covered extensively by our guest, Caitlin Dickerson, national immigration reporter for the New York Times and analyst at CNN. Uh, She covered the story of Constantin Mutu, the youngest child to be separated at the border, the southern border of the U.S., from his parents. This happened in 2018. He was four months old. Caitlin Dickerson, welcome to our show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Maybe we should begin with the story of Constantine's parents, uh, Vasile and Florentina Mutu. They were from Romania. W- what was their plan? What were they doing as they approached the, the southern border? What did they think was going to happen?
1: Vasile and Florentina Mutu both grew up in a village called Romniku Volce, or rather a village outside of a city called Ramnicu Volce, in central romania like you said they're both roma which means that they were not able to get access to a quality education only had a few years of schooling each and have never had access to good jobs in the formal economy and they'd also been exposed their entire lives to really overt experiences of racism whether it was being harassed in the streets and being yelled at occasionally for Vasile that even meant being roughed up in the streets sometimes having their children be harassed in school and then most disturbingly after Florentina gave birth to their fifth child Constantine she says that the doctor who delivered her baby by C-section also performed a tubal ligation without her knowledge. She signed some forms when she says she was in the days of labor, but also she can't read or write and didn't know what the form said, she says. And, and after they found out that Florentina had been sterilized and they were devastated because they'd planned to have more children, which is traditional in the Roma culture, they finally decided to change their lives and to move the united states they'd known a few other roma people including florentina's brother who'd gone to the united states to seek asylum and so they hoped to do that too and the only way that they could do it the only way they could afford to was to get to mexico with their two youngest children constantine and his brother nicolas who was four at the time and try to get into the United States to get asylum status or at least get into immigration proceedings and then try to send for their older three children while they were hopefully working.
0: So as they're uh, approaching the border, and it might I, I might urge people to actually read Caitlin Dickerson's story about this because it covers the logistics of it uh, very well, but basically through a f- series of bad decisions and and complicated uh, misunderstandings, getting off the bus, getting back on the bus. Somehow or other, husband and wife wind up in different places. Husband winds up uh, holding the four-month-old child and winds up in contact with U.S. border officials. And maybe you can pick up the story there.
1: Yeah. So it was very difficult for them to make their ways through Mexico, right? Because they don't speak Spanish. They don't speak English they speak romanian and so they'd been on a bus together and had gotten off it was a crowded bus so crowded that they weren't even able to sit next to each other had gotten off the bus to try to get some medicine for constantine and actually lost each other where vasile and constantine they'd been sitting separately got back onto the bus settled in thinking that florentina and nicolas were there too but they weren't it was terrible because when vasile realized that they'd been separated he also realized that his phone was out of international minutes because they'd been calling their three older children in Romania since they arrived at Mexico to check in, make sure everyone was okay. But those calls were very expensive and so neither he or Florentina had any international minutes left on their cell phones. So Vasile thought the best next move would be to go to the United States border. He had his passport and uh, and Constantine's passport and both of their birth certificates. And he decided to proceed with the plan to go and let American officials know that they were seeking asylum. And he thought that he would be able to tell them that he'd lost his wife and they would let him use the phone to try to contact Florentina somehow. So, but instead, yeah. what ended up happening, because of, and of course at the time, Vasile had no idea, was that this was right as zero tolerance was, was ramping up when they arrived. Before it had been announced publicly, but well, during a time where family separations were very much well underway. And so instead of being you know helped and being given a phone to be able to try to contact his wife somehow... He and the baby were actually separated from one another and Vasile was shackled and put into detention.
0: Right. And so then uh, the father, everybody kind of winds up on kind of parallel tracks. Uh, The mother is still south of the border. The father is in detention. Uh, The child is eventually placed with a foster family. There are aspects to this, Caitlin, that they really do seem almost out of uh, Orwell or Kafka. There's um, at one point a sense that because the father is uncontrollable, inconsolable, excuse me, inconsolable and constantly sad about the fact that his four-month-old baby has been ripped from his grasp and taken to God knows where. He's emotional and crying all the time. They decide he has a psychiatric disorder and needs at least evaluation?
1: That's what Fasile says, and we requested his medical records from the government. We received some, but the vast majority of all we've requested we still don't have but he he was sent for medical evaluation many times and doctors and records that i've seen noted that he was deeply depressed and confused an important thing to remember is that during his time of detention and vasile remained detained for four months in american custody he was not provided a translator so he had his child taken away he wasn't clear where constantine was and he also couldn't talk to anybody when he would ask for help when he would ask for what was going to happen with his case when he would ask where his child was nobody would answer his questions because they couldn't understand him and he cried so much that his cellmates decided to just beat him up because they were so frustrated and annoyed that he was crying all the time and making such a a scene
0: so meanwhile young constantin winds up with a foster family on a tree-lined uh, street in a in a nice house uh somewhere in michigan i believe and does Constantine did ever know anything about that? I mean, while he's in custody, does he have any idea where his son is?
1: Vasile does eventually learn that Constantine is with a foster family in Michigan. That's in large part thanks to Constantine's caseworker, Alma, who was assigned to take over his case. Constantine was placed into the care of a, a federal contracting agency that, that has a contract to house children, and in particular, vulnerable children. It's called Bethany Christian Services. And so whereas many of the separated children ended up in these massive shelters, Bethany really prefers when they can to put children in foster homes. And they tend to deal with kids who are younger and more vulnerable. And each child who is placed into one of their foster homes is assigned a caseworker whose job is to liaise with the child's family to try to figure out a plan for the child's release. So she eventually did get in touch with both of Constantine's parents, but you can imagine between the language barrier and just the fear about what had happened, I think it was difficult for them to actually trust that people who said that they were on the Mutu side were in fact on the Mutu side. It was confusing at times who worked for the American government and who didn't, who was responsible for taking Constantine away and who wasn't. And so even though they they had a general sense of where he was, it was still an incredibly nerve wracking. And also, of course, just sad time because they missed their son.
0: Yeah, I said Orwell uh, and Kafka, it almost seems like the Handmaid's Tale too. this, this taking away of a child and really not really providing very much reliable information about where the child is and, and what's happening. So so how long uh, are Vasile, the father, and Constantine, the son, kept separate? How long does that separation go for?
1: So Constantine is kept in Michigan for five months. Vasile is released from federal custody after four months. He's told that he's going to get his child back when he leaves the detention facility, and instead he's put onto a plane without Constantine Again, he's inconsolable and he's sent home. And, and after Fasile returned home, it was another month before Constantine was actually allowed to leave the United States because he was put in his own separate immigration proceedings when he arrived here. And those proceedings had to conclude before the baby was released.
0: I mean, I think we have to assume, uh, Caitlin Dickerson, that all of the children who are forcibly separated from their parents at the southern border are going to bear the scars uh, of this trauma and the consequences uh, of this trauma for most of their lives, if not all of their lives. This particular age introduces a whole new set of variables, a four-month-old child, you know, we'd have to ask Piaget or somebody how much that child knows and can retain uh, about the first four months uh, of life. And then the next five months of life probably make a different kind of stamp on the child's consciousness. So I'm assuming by the time that uh, Constantine gets out of Michigan and gets back to Romania where his parents are, his parents are a distant memory.
1: Yes, from everything that we know. And you're right, you know, you can't get inside the head of a four-month-old or a nine-month-old. But what we do know is that by the time Constantine returned home, he'd spent the majority of his life in American federal custody in this foster home. And he was very traumatized by that second separation because he was starting to develop attachments from what we know and from what his foster family has said. So he developed, you know, strong bonds with his foster parents and it was very difficult for him to be separated from them. We think it was physical, you know, it was, there, was, there were difficulties in him having to, and this happened twice, live in a different place, learn to digest different foods, adjust to a different time zone, but also just being used to someone's voice, being used to their touch, being used to their demeanor and their family dynamics. He had a really difficult time. I mean, when my story published, Constantine was almost two years old. He still wasn't able to walk or talk at all. Which was very different from the experiences of the rest of his siblings. He was very fussy still, still having stomach problems and just struggling to adjust back to life in Romania.
0: Right. And I think, you know, there are other parts to this, including the fact that well, I mean, one of the things your story mentions is noise. He was in a rather quiet environment through those five months that he was in this house in Michigan. A Romani family in Romania is just a, a noisier place. Uh, that was a difficult adjustment. And I mean, let's face it, he was going from what we enjoy here in this country, which is a certain level of affluence and comfort, back to the poverty that's so dire that in the first place it occasioned a very, very drastic decision by these parents to try to get into the United States uh, with two of their five children. So, I mean, he, he's going from some comfort probably to some pretty significant discomfort.
1: Absolutely, and that was really difficult for Constantine's mother, Florentina. As you can imagine, she suffered very significantly throughout this entire process and still has a long way to go in, in recovering emotionally. But one of the things that she would talk to me about was this Complicated mix of feelings where she felt so grateful for the foster family that cared for her baby. She felt so grateful for the caseworker who did the same, who allowed her to do FaceTime calls with him and, you know, who took pictures for her so that she could see him as he grew and developed, started to make different noises. They would record those for her so that she could feel, at least in some small way, like she was still part of his life. And yet, when Constantine returned to Romania, he came with. Like you say, many of these modern Western luxuries, you know, new clothes, toys, diapers, a stroller, pacifiers, all these things that, you know, she knows that she and her husband would not be able to afford to provide for Constantine, at least at the same level of quality as he had in the United States. And that was really difficult. She experienced overwhelmingly feeling that she was glad to have their family back together, that there was really no other option. And of course, you know, she would have done anything to get Constantine back. There was also this smaller sense of guilt that she experienced from taking him out of this more affluent environment where he had more resources available to him and bringing him back, like you said, to the circumstances that they had fled in the first place.
0: So you you have this family upon whom has visited been visited so much stress, we'd be here all day trying to count it all up. I mean, you've got the stress that the mother has gone through by having a child separated entirely from her and having her husband separated from her, but in a different place. Uh, you've got the husband who's been shackled in prison occasionally, uh, physically tormented by other inmates while he goes through the terrible grief of not even really quite understanding what's happened to his child. Then you've had this child who is kind of yo-yoed through uh, a whole series of different existences, for. months in Romania, five months in Michigan, now back to Romania. It's almost uncountable. We could even add the caseworker that you mentioned, Alma, who I think actually eventually quit, kind of broken from watching this whole process unfold. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. We talk in this country about reparations sometimes. You feel as though maybe the U.S. government needs to at least look at what happened here and, if not, try to make it up to the Mutu family back in Romania, at least begin to try to understand, and what's happening because this process is repeating itself in, in different colorations probably uh, throughout this whole period of of high activity at the border what do we know about what the federal government learned or did about any of this
1: there's an ongoing federal lawsuit so there there are two ways i should say that this Could be addressed one is this ongoing federal lawsuit out of the southern district of california this is the lawsuit that prompted all of the family separation cases those families to be reunified nationwide that case is still ongoing and part of what the aclu which is the lead plaintiff in the lawsuit or rather who's representing the lead plaintiff in the lawsuit is is fighting for is to try to get the government to offer some sort of support whether it's mental health support whether it's any other kind of assistance, something to try to acknowledge and address the damage, which as you said, will be very long-term if not permanent. The second option is that some families, including the Mutus, have begun to file civil claims against the United States government for damages, for the emotional harm that they suffered Those cases, because of the way that the Torts Act operates and limitations in terms of trying to actually sue the federal government, it's not a very easy process. Those claims have to be filed, and one has been filed on behalf of the Mutus. There's a six month waiting period during which the government has the opportunity to respond in a a formal way to offer to settle, for example. If the government doesn't offer to settle or respond in a way that is satisfactory, then at that point, the case can move forward. It'll take a long time It'll be a really complicated process. It's an uphill battle, but that's really the only other option for recourse that these families have. And so we're just we're still waiting to see the way that these cases are resolved, including the case of the Mutus. And that will give us an idea of whether families will receive any kind of assistance for what they went through.
0: So the story that we're telling, and in the subsequent segments, we're going to tell you a lot more about who the Roma are. But Caitlin Dickerson, one thing that we do know is that in Europe, they've often been a persecuted minority, frequently terribly persecuted. Even the story that you told at the beginning about the non-consensual tubal ligation of the mother is not an unfamiliar story to the Roma. This is one of the kind of social engineering policies that's been carried out against them by governments. So I guess like a lot of people showing up at the southern border, they're seeking political asylum, which my sense is that maybe in years past they had a better chance of getting. Maybe you can give us a sense of how this picture has altered for them.
1: Asylum, in general, is becoming a much more difficult status to obtain because of all the changes, both in policy and practice, that the Trump administration has instituted. But one of the reasons why I was glad to be able to tell the story of the Mutus is because in many ways, they're a sort of classic asylum case and that they do face very clear persecution by their government, by the public in a way that has put them in harm's way. The type of person that the asylum laws, if you can meet the standards that are put in place, the kind of case that asylum laws are intended to protect. So it is possible that the Mutus could have obtained asylum status, I think they actually had a, a reasonably strong case for asylum compared to many others who who try. And there is a precedent in the history of Roma people being able to obtain asylum status in the U.S. I think the main reason why those numbers are so low is that it's just very difficult for people to get to the United States from Europe, and they're more likely to try to seek safety, seek shelter or refuge elsewhere. But it is possible, especially based on experiences that have put them in in physical danger and that have happened repeatedly and and are likely to happen again. Those are all pieces of evidence that would, I think, you know, based on my experience, not being a lawyer, could be compelling to an immigration judge.
0: We're going to have to uh, stop it there. But Caitlin Dickerson, national immigration reporter for The New York Times and analyst at CNN, thank you so much for telling us this very sad story. You're welcome. And when we come back, we're going to tell you more about this people, this group of people who are difficult to document, too. They probably are Europe's largest ethnic minority, uh, but uh, because of their circumstances, it's sometimes difficult to know even how many of them live in a given place. So much more to come after this break. Okay, we're going to move off a little bit from the case of Constantin Mutu and his family uh, and talk more about the Roma at large. Uh, about who they are and what other kinds of persecutions uh, they have suffered uh, to help us do that uh, and ideally also to help us celebrate them as well. Uh, joining us now is uh, Magna a uh, Roma rights activist from Romania, director of the Roma program at Harvard FXB Center for Health and Human Rights and co-author of Realizing Roma Rights. Welcome to this conversation.
2: Good afternoon, Colin, and thank you so much for for the invitation. It's a pleasure to to be with you today.
0: Maybe something that we have done inadequately so far is explain exactly who the Roma people are. So uh, give us just a a quick sense uh, of who this minority actually is.
2: Sure. I'm happy to. And then if you allow me, I would uh, like to to make a few points regarding the case that Caitlin was talking about as well. But to start with us, we are an ethnic minority group. Uh, We don't have a country or a land that we claim as our own, but we do have a population of about 14, 15 million Roma living across the world. Most Roma live in uh, in Europe, about 10 to 12 million. Uh, there is uh, about a 1 million Roma living in the U.S., but also there are Roma in the Middle East and Latin America. Apparently, our origins are traced back to the territories of India centuries ago, and uh, several theories say, say that the migration of Roma happened on several waves, um, these, these theories differ uh, in in many ways um um but uh, some of them saying that uh, Roma left uh uh during eleventh or twelfth century for from the panda region um other theories Say that Roma left as one single group in the 10th century. Nevertheless, I think that in the absence of all concrete historical evidence, what we can say is that uh, around 1000, a large Roma, a large group of Roma, reached the Byzantine Empire, what is today Greece and Turkey, and uh, this population um, continued to exist on the territories of various continents uh, today.
0: All right. So we'll come back to that a little bit, too, and a little bit more of that history. But, yeah, you said you did want to respond to the Constantin Mutu case. Uh, Tell us what it is you'd like to say.
2: Yes. First of all, I do want to thank to Caitlin and the Weekly for speaking up against this outrage that has affected so many children from Central America and beyond, but also to thank them for being willing to, to listen to this, story of the Romani family beyond uh, prejudice and beyond bias, which uh, I've seen in many reports drafted by by researchers, academics, uh, and and also by journalists. So it is a, a practice of seeing bias in reporting on Roma, and I'm happy that there is a lot of humanity and there is a lot of thoughtfulness in the way that uh, this, uh, this uh, article has, has, been, uh, has been written. Uh, we know that there is a small number of Roma that uh, migrated, m- is migrating from, from Eastern Europe to, uh, to the U.S., but yet what we've seen in the past few years at the Harvard FxB Center's Roma program is that we receive a growing mm, volume of requests for expert advice from representatives of Romani asylum-seeking families. And the ce- central element of these asylum claims that are advanced by Romani families is uh, racism, violence, discrimination, and stigmatization in Europe, including bullying and violence and segregating segregation in, in the school environment. It's true that segregation uh, is a phenomenon uh, all across Europe, but it is also true that violence, including hate crimes, um, are a reality uh, in Europe today, and they are on the rise. Uh, some of the um, some of you may have heard about this case in 2017, when three sisters from from uh, from uh, Italy were burned alive. There is another case of a, a 13-year-old Romani girl, Yanula, who was shot dead in Greece in 2018 a 23-year-old uh, uh, Ukrainian-Romani man who was again killed um, uh, in, the, in, in, in a, a few years ago. So, you know, this list can continue on and on. what I'm saying is that in the past decade, we did document uh, hate crimes and anti-Romani violence in Hungary, Ukraine, Italy, Bulgaria, France, and perhaps the most recent examples are the cruel anti-Romani mobs in Italy and France in 2019. But again, going back to to the asylum seekers, and I'll I'll stop with this, Uh, our Roma program at Harvard has seen that along with forced removal from parents, as uh, we've seen in the case, uh, in Mudu's case, some Romani child migrants have also difficulty securing competent representation to establish uh, an immigration status in the U.S. Some lawyers, for instance, often of Romanian origins, and as they speak the same language with some of, of these Romani asylum seekers, hold really strong anti-Romani prejudice from back home, and they fail failed to represent Romani children properly. Also, in several cases, we've seen girls from traditional Romani families that have been detained in the U.S., and then they were forced to cut the, cut off their hair, only to face community shaming after deportation back to, to Romania. So, so there are very So,
0: magnum Mataga, I just want to break in here, and make sure we get to all, all this stuff and we don't run out of time here. Um, first of all, it, it does seem that in Europe, the, some of this prejudice runs very, very high. I was looking at some European Commission uh, research on uh, anti-Roma attitudes. Uh, first of all, they do seem to run very high in, in Italy, where uh, Matteo Salvini, uh, the leader of the far right party there, even used an Italian word for dirty gypsies, uh, I think in a tweet or maybe in a comment, to, uh, to characterize uh, a Roma woman there. Um, and it does seem that as we're, we're seeing this, this international kind of surge of, of nativism, that Roma people are on the losing end of that.
2: Th- that is true. And on-, on one hand, we do have prejudices. You're right that in Hungary, uh, in-, in Italy, according to Pew Research Center, about 80% of, of Italians have unfavorable uh, 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 opinions about Roma. But it's not just about interpersonal racism. We talk about in, in institutional racism as well. And I think that the intentions uh, of uh, of Salvini uh, uh, Matteo Salvini, uh, are, are very clear when it comes to Roma. He does want to, to create a, a separate census for Roma in view of deporting them from, from Italy. It, and it's not the only case. Of institutional racism, we've seen that across Europe. I mentioned segregation in education. That's a fact in so many schools, in uh, in in countries of the European Union and and beyond. We also talk about uh, internalized racism, and we would see, you know, many Roma thinking less. About themselves because this is what the literature, this is what the media, this is what the TV told them that uh, they are inferior to, to the Roma, to, to, the, uh, to the non-Roma. So what we see is this racecraft. If you want to, if I am allowed to use Barbara Fields' uh, terminology, this, uh, this idea that somehow justify racism, these ideas are, are there in, in, in Europe, and Europeans continue to think that we are part of an inferior. Culture. We are part of a culture of criminality, and these sort of uh, uh, ideologies of racism do help Europeans to justify their, their um, anti-Romani policies, anti-Romani violence, anti-Romani uh, measures.
0: Yeah. So I, I looked at one piece of research that showed, uh, I think uh, the, the question was, would you be completely uncomfortable having a Romani coworker? Uh, and the the numbers were much higher for that group of people than two other very vulnerable populations in Europe, uh, trans persons and Muslims. The people, the number of Europeans who said they would be completely uncomfortable in a work environment with a Romani person was uh, considerably higher than, than even those two other groups. So, uh, you know, one thing, we have to say a little bit more about is the history of all this. You talked about various theories of the time of the Roma migration, uh, but one thing that we certainly see starting in the 14th century are Roma people being listed as property. Uh, They, uh, as they moved into other parts of Europe, pretty quickly became slaves, sometimes slaves to monks, uh, who you wouldn't think of as maybe having slaves. Uh, So so this is maybe an untold part uh, of the Roma story, at least for Americans. Maybe you can say a little bit more about the 500-year history of slavery.
2: Of, of course. Um, so what I want to say first is that by by the 1100s, um, if you want, Eastern European historical documents uh, do make references about this new group of immigrants who worked as skilled metal craftsmen, musicians and soldiers, and some... Uh, Eastern European countries initially saw the Romani people as useful new residents. So Romani scholars, as Nicolae Biorgia, would really really, um, make a connection between the history of, of slavery on the territory of Romania and the economic gain of uh of of the country from uh from from that time but the slavery is really one of the most dramatic form of institutionalized oppression of Roma um in on the territories of Romania as you mentioned from the early 1300s different axes of power really mix together to to enforce these repressive anti-Romani uh, state measures to, through the, through the institution of slavery And it is this racist ideology that I was talking about, the racist ideology of inferiority that complemented these economic self-interest of of Romanian uh, Orthodox Church, uh, of Romanian state, but also of of the nobles, to promote a system where tyrannical power really yield huge economic gains to slave uh, um, owners in both Wallachia and Moldova, for about 500 uh, years uh, of slavery, um, as I mentioned, the the state, the church, the boyars or the nobility, they all um, all own they own slaves for 500 years, and it was not until the 19th century, basically in 1855, 1856, when the slavery ended. Uh, but it it didn't. Uh, the abolition didn 't happen with uh with reparations it didn 't happen to uh, uh, through um, a recognition uh, of this um, uh, this catastrophe and it didn 't provide land to uh, to the former slaves so the if you want the the slavery continued in a more an institutionalized way for for many years. Even today we are still struggling to have a recognition of the Roman slavery um, in, uh, in Romania. There is no apologies from the state institutions or from the representatives of of the Orthodox cha- uh, Orthodox Church, and not to mention recognition in in museums, in history books, in uh, um, in, in in the country. So there is not an an, an, an acknowledgement, if you want, of uh, of this uh, atrocity that uh, marks so so many uh, Romani people. M- me myself, I'm a descendant of of sl- slaves uh, and. Uh, I, every time I go back to, to, to my village now, after I've learned that my ancestors were in the area where I actually grew up, I cannot you know, help but thinking about the children who were raped, the children who were sold on the territories of, uh, of my, my childhood.
0: It, there's, I think people listening are going to spot a fairly obvious parallel here, a group of people who were typically enslaved, a group of people who in modernity struggled to get the same education that would put them on a par on an even playing field with a racial or ethnic majority group, a group of people who are often mischaracterized uh, as criminals uh, or deviants of some kind. There's a way in which the trajectory of African Americans uh, in this country very. There's also a G word that closely parallels the N word in in this country. There's a way in which that that arc uh, of African Americans and Roma people uh, are very, very similar.
2: Yes, I I agree with you, and I think that in in the case of the G word, uh, uh, in the absence of strong advocates, Voices. We do see that the the term "Gypsy" persists, and more so in the U.S., uh, where alongside with with citizens, we also see that uh, media uh, or public uh, figures they also use this derogatory word to to define uh, Roma. Uh, if you check, for instance, uh, Jason Momoa's uh, Instagram called uh, Pride of Gypsies, but also their website, you will see that they define Gypsy as a nomadic or free-spirited person and describe themselves as a tribe of artists and filmmakers. Uh, th- there is so much to unpack there, but the main idea is that we, they don't see us as, uh, as a people. We are not seen as a people by Americans. Uh, and most, m- many other definitions of the word gypsies describe us as a traditionally nomad people, but also the expression to be gypped. Mm -hmm. Uh, that is used so often in the U.S. is deeply rooted in the word gypsy, and it is uh, a parative expression meaning to cheat, right, and to defraud. Mm -hmm. So uh, the word gypsy is really deeply rooted in the racist idea of romantic criminality, from Cher's gypsy tramps and thieves to Shakira's I might steal your clothes.
0: All right. Uh, We're going to pause there. Thank you so much to uh, Magda Matake, Roma rights activist from Romania, director of the Roma program at Harvard FXB Center for Health and Human Rights and co-author of Realizing Roma Rights. Uh, The end of that conversation is a perfect bridge to our final segment, that whole question of Roma identity and indeed of the G word. All right. We're back. Uh, We're uh, doing the final segment here of this show that we've been doing uh, about the Roma people or Romani people. Uh, And joining us now to to complete our conversations uh, is Christiana Grigore, a research scholar and founder of the Roma People's Project at Columbia University. She herself is a Roma. She's working on a book that explores how American culture helped her understand her Roma identity. Welcome to this conversation, Christiana.
3: I'm happy to be here.
0: So, um, you know, this is a, there's a nice bridge, I think, from Magda to you, uh, because one of the things that you've written, the gypsy in me, uh, explores this whole question of what we were calling the G word in the previous segment. And, of course, the title of that is from a pretty well-known jazz standard by the Gershwins. There's, there's a way in which, in America, that, that term, although it obviously has all kinds of derogatory baggage, just the way Magda uh, said, also has, you know, some romantic baggage as well.
3: Um, that's correct. And the exotic part of the, uh, the Roma stereotypes at the first glance look like um, they're not harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, there are differences between the, the criminal stereotypes about the Roma and the exotic stereotypes about the Roma. Um, but they're harmful in their own ways because when you see uh, people as uh, entertainers, as dancers, um, it's easy to objectify them and it's easy to uh, disregard their problems and uh, dehumanize them. So you could, you know, see them as um, as something fun and exotic and uh, spice up your life for a little bit. But you don't see them as colleagues, as classmates, as, uh, you know, future wives or husbands. Uh, They don't have uh, legitimate formal ways in which you look at it. And uh, many times I meet uh, people in the United States who, when I say I'm Roma, they don't know much. And then I tell them more. And I say oftentimes, but often, but mistakenly called Gypsy. And they say, oh, that's so exciting and that's so cool. And I know that in many cases it comes from a non racist place it comes from an ignorant place so what I try to do in my work at, uh, at Columbia University is to you know, share with them about the the Roma the Roma history and the history of of, of slavery because when they associate Roma with mobility and freedom um, they project an image that I wish the Roma people enjoy these freedoms but unfortunately our history, it's um, oftentimes quite the opposite. And when they learn more about that, uh, many of them actually become allies of the Roma culture because they are um, interested and intrigued about the gypsy culture and freedom and music and dance. Um, But when they learn about um, uh, the real Roma culture, they become interested and I'm always very happy when I see that transition uh, to more awareness and more education.
0: So there's a term, a racial term in America, passing. You know, it's usually applied in the world of uh, light-skinned African-Americans would pass for white rather than declare who they actually were. And I sense that within the Roma culture, there's some of that, too, that there's a reluctance maybe to declare who you are, what you are, the price you pay for being that particular ethnicity, particularly in certain European countries, is high enough that, that maybe you try to pretend you're something else.
3: That's correct, uh, passing or you know sometimes called acting white. Um, it's very common uh, among uh, Roma people. Um, it was also my my case. I didn't want to um, talk about my Roma identity for a very long time. and um, the reason why this happens is you you play down your Roma identity because oftentimes it's the only way in which you can be seen as a respected citizen, you're not immediately associated with a criminal or a fortune teller or somebody who you need to watch your wallet uh, uh, when you're around them. Um, um, There are many Roma people who are invisible, uh, who are, um, that's that's often the case in uh, Romania. It also happens in the United States a lot. I uh, work with some Roma communities in the US and um, they they keep a low profile, um, and oftentimes they internalize the stigma um, for generations and generations. And uh, when I work with them, and they see new ways in which they can relate to their identity, um, I um, in my work at Columbia University, we um, present stories of Roma who come out of. The closet. I know it's a term mm-hmm. often associated with um, uh, the, uh, the gay uh, people, but it applies to Roma as well. And it's a very difficult, challenging process of going from uh, stigma and a secret identity to embracing uh, who we are. That was definitely uh, my case as well. And it's It might look like a choice. It's not. It's a surviving coping mechanism because even in the case of, for example, my family back in Romania, um, even if we, you know, everybody worked, everybody tried to do everything they could to be part of society, went to school. When I got the highest honors in first grade, um, my um, classmates' uh, parents complained to my teacher and said, how can you give this uh, um, honors to a, a gypsy girl that's unheard of. And of course that affected me and was the last time I, I had the highest honors. I was good, but not the best because it was this trade-off between being socially included and being um, uh, excelling, right? So, uh, or in, when I was in college, uh, one of um, my uh, boyfriend college at the time her uh, I I didn't have the chance to meet his mother but she saw some of the photos of me and although we never talked in our relationship about my Roma identity was completely secret um, his mother said watch out she she looks like a gypsy and you want to be careful um, so um, in my work at Columbia University I try to give alternatives and uh, encourage the Roma people to share their identity and go through this challenging but overall fulfilling process to share who they they are. Because when you hide who you are, you don't really um, uh, fulfill your potential. And um, also, you have the chance to be a role model for for other Roma. And um, to share with the world that we are more than the cliché, simple stereotypes, Um, we often see in
0: media. Right. We we should say, uh, you know, that story about you in first grade is a very wrenching story to hear. But it's also a story of uh, a Roma child in the school system. One of the things that I've learned in the research that we've been doing for this show is that uh, Romani children are often kept out of school systems, that a high percentage of Roma children in Europe just simply don't get educations
3: um that's that's correct i think uh, many times you hear people saying roma people don't want to send their children to school but things are way more complex than that and more more often than not what happens is the uh, quality of education is very low or the children are bullied or the professors have biases against the roma people they already know they're not gonna do well in school or they're already like treating the roma people in a different way in a negative way um, so the chances are um, not that uh, great. There is abs- absolutely a need for um, for a better education and more inclusion of Roma, Roma studies, Roma scholars, Roma students in mainstream um, academic universities, both in the United States, where very few people, I think, know that there is a large Roma population, um, as well as in um, uh, as well as in Europe.
0: Right. I mean, just to reiterate one thing that came up with Magda, Magda too. I mean, obviously, the kinds of prices that you're describing right now uh, that uh, you and other Roma people would pay in the United States just in terms of the psychic damage done by, you know, very negative assumptions, very negative connotations cutting things being said by people very close to you or close to people that you love. I mean, th- that's almost incalculable. But in some of the European countries, the price is even higher. I mean, um, I- you know, increasingly as these waves of white nationalism spread across Europe, to countries like France and Italy, it's v- flat out dangerous to be a Roma person.
3: Um, that's correct. In my work, I um, sometimes work with uh, Roma refugees that claim asylum in and- um, their cases are heartbreaking. Um, so much instability, lack of access to healthcare, uh, housing—it's uh, horrendous. Uh, what um, um, I learn, and I, I, I believe that I, I also hear stories of communities that are inclusive, that are open to learn more. I visited such community in Pennsylvania a couple, a couple of years ago. Are so important and um finding spaces that are safe and inclusive and have both in the academia and the larger society to understand what really happens because it's easy to judge a people when you see um you know uh, the first glance but um there's there's a history of oppression and discrimination for hundreds of years and even the most fortunate of us who had the chance to to um, have access to education and uh, be, uh, it was not our choice to, to pass, but it happened. We deal with so much painful things and struggles and challenges. Um, I'm very grateful. My experience in the United States has been uh, very positive from the first moment I came uh, to, this, to, to US 13 years ago. And the openness to strangers that many Americans expressed in welcoming and the curiosity and openness, it's so important. It transformed who I am personally. And later in my research and in my work, it provided a space for um, my work and my research to, to start a new conversation about what it means to be Roma, what it means to define who we are from inside out, uh, not to have an identity imposed on us, not to have internalized uh, forms of oppression where we suffer from shame and stigma. And we ourselves oftentimes don't see ourselves as fully human. So what we try to do at Columbia University and with the support of many allies and many um uh, non roma friends that are uh, very supportive and dedicated is to create this space where we can question what does it mean to be roma in the 21st century what does it mean to be part of a global people that uh, we don't have a, we don't have a country we don't have a territory um, um nor a narrative about returning to one i think it's so fascinating there are so many fascinating aspects about our culture that there's still um, to be explored, uh, connect Roma studies or global studies. We are a people that are multicultural by definition, and I think there is so much potential and there is so much already wonderful things that are happening. So we, I, I try to um, expose that and to um, spotlight that because um, it's important uh, and it's important to see that. You know, things can change and it's hard and it's difficult um, to deal with prejudices and to change mentalities, but um, I think it's possible.
0: Okay, okay. Uh, we've ended in a perfect place then. Uh, on a note of hope, Christi- Christiana uh, Grigore, thank you so much for uh, joining us uh, from the Roma People's Project, the Roma People's Project at Columbia University. Today's show was produced by our senior producer, Betsy Kaplan. Kyle Wolf as usual, as usual is on the board making everything sound great and sweet. Tomorrow's show is about roadside attractions, and not the nice historic ones, but the garish things that loom up on the highway and make you think, should I pull over, or Is that just too weird?